We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So Courtney, we're sitting in the studio after having a pretty intense conversation with um, Taryn Weeramanthri. Yeah, I am like blown away by the amount of stuff that he's done and the amount of information he knows and yep. the stories that he has. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so the, a bit of background, uh, we I approached Taryn maybe four or five months ago about mm. coming on the podcast. And he's a very busy man. So yeah. the fact that he even saw like emails or had time to talk was That's right. great. And, and I guess it had been suggested to us by a previous guest, you know, they'd mentioned that he was doing this climate health inquiry report. And they said, look, you, when, it, when that's finished, you should definitely get Taryn on. And Taryn's obviously mm. affiliated with the school, as you'll hear in our conversation. Um, but, you know, the report was, wasn't tabled in Parliament for some months after it was produced, which is normal. That happens a lot with government reports. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But it was really great when I got the email saying that it's, it's now been released and I, I'm free to talk about it. Yeah, uh, yeah, which was great. Yeah. And then the conversation happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it didn't quite go... Exactly as we were planning. Yeah. So, um, like, we we um, read the report and came up with our points to talk about. And um, as all of the listeners know, we like to go through a bit of the background about the person that we have because usually the way that they get to whatever they're doing is fascinating in itself. And turns out um, Taryn's story was too fascinating, yeah. I feel. He has too much... Uh, he's he, got too much experience to not ask him about all of the things that he's done. Yeah, so it was a very natural flowing conversation that yeah. ended up having not much to do with climate change. No, we did, we did sort of touch on the climate report at different points. Yeah. And, and you hear at the end that he gives us a bit of a brief overview of how he, how he um, drafted it and how mm. he wrote it and why he took the time he did to try and make it readable for people, you yeah. know, for the, the general population. Um, but we were just got bogged down in all the stuff he's done in government and mm-hmm. the decisions he's had to made, make over the years um, and some of the accidental mentors that he had yeah. that happened to be oh legends and, of epidemiology. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. So, um, yeah, it's slightly fangirling, I feel like, because I've, <laughs> I've met him before um, a couple of times and mm. I never realised his extensive background. And, um, I, yeah, he's just he's just done so many good things. Yeah. Um, for Western Australia and Northern Territory and Australia yeah. in general, I feel. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. And I guess we could ramble on for hours ourselves talking yeah. about it. But we should probably let people have a listen. So enjoy. Very excited to welcome Taryn Wiramanthri to the podcast. Welcome. Morning, Craig. Yeah, thanks very much for making the time today. Now, your official title is you're an adjunct professor, is that right? Yes, at uh, at the University of Western Australia, the School yeah. of Population and Global Health, so yeah. a colleague of yours and, yeah. and Courtney's. Yeah. <laughs> and, and your role within the school, you, you sit on a advisory council or something like that? Yeah, so there's an advisory board which has been set up for two, three years. So I joined that and I've chaired it for the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. And I feel like your your professional history contains so many like cool and good things in it. So uh, just, I guess, briefly 
Do you want to mention how maybe you got interested into whatever you're doing now and what you did at uni and all that kind of stuff so like someone like me can follow and uh, <laughs> continue on with those footsteps because I'd love to know. Um, so I was born in Sri Lanka. Yeah. So, um, um, but um, we moved to United Kingdom when I was three. And in fact, all my other brothers and sisters, older and younger, um, were born there. Yeah. So... Um, I grew up in London um, till the age of 16, and then my parents migrated here. That was the 70s, um, and we came along with them. Mm -hmm. So um, that was quite an experience. I had a year of school. Um, it was pretty important because um, one of the reasons I think we left um, the United Kingdom was it was becoming quite difficult for people of colour ah, in course. the 70s. It, yeah. was, it was a tough time, and I think my parents thought rightly that... Um, there would be a better opportunities for us in Australia, and I think I think that, I think that's true. Um, and uh, but what struck me when I came to Australia was that, relatively speaking, I was treated pretty fairly and well mm -hmm. as a kid in a in a new school. But um, there were kind of strange attitudes towards Aboriginal people, which I just couldn't understand. Ah, uh, yep. All right, so I just didn't get that part of the Australian psyche, and it kind of I always wanted to know more about about that um, and uh, it kind of led to a, a future career in Abri Aboriginal health. Mm. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I was kind of a jack of all trades and master of none. I was kind of equally interested in humanities and science and medicine seemed to be a kind of good pathway between the two of them. Um, and uh, I was exposed to public health for the first time as a, I think it was at the end of, end of fourth year or something like that. Uh, where there was a Cancer Council vacation scholarship offered. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, it seemed like a, a good way to earn some money <laughs> yeah, and nice. you didn't have to go and you know work on the bins or whatever I'd done the previous <laughs> year. And uh, that was an incredible opportunity because I ended up working uh, with Darcy Holman, who was a PhD student. Um, and you know you know how Stella Darcy is. Yeah. Yeah. And he was very kind as well and a really great... Um, guide for me and so he was doing his PhD and I did a, a project on melanoma with him um, and his boss was Bruce Armstrong. <laughs> oh jeez. So this like was royalty of epidemiology. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know that I was just yeah. kind of stumbling into this group of people but yeah. in fact once you've experienced those people um, you um, are immediately interested and also public health is a it's kind of a generalist discipline mm. so you can encompass all of life and work and whatever you're feeling inside public health. And so mm -hmm. for a generalist, it was a good landing spot. Okay. So when people talk about a public health physician, is that what they're, they're meaning? Someone who's got a, an interest just generally in public health is also a medical practitioner? So I think they mean um, someone who is a medical... When they use the term physician, they're talking about a medical practitioner who's specialised in public health. Okay. So there is a training program. Right. So it's, a, it's as, as much a specialty as any other branch of medicine. Okay. So um, that training program started in the early 1990s when the yep. Faculty of Public Health Medicine was created. And, and what typically are the activities of a public health physician? Yeah, so there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an interesting um, set of skills you need. So people, everyone's asked to do a Master's of Public Health as a baseline um, and then really three years of advanced training in various different posts and people will get experience in working in a health service 
you know, doing a kind of public health operational role, which might be infectious disease, mm-hmm. you know, outbreak management, contact tracing. We all yep. know about that. <laughs> yep. um, but it also might be they come and work in the department and do some advanced epidemiology or they work on policy or they go and work in a non-government organisation or something. So um, the basic skill set is being able to apply um, public health principles but also understand the biomedical side of things. Mm-hmm. And part of the key skill set is actually then communicating that with the public. Um, there's some very, very good spokespeople for public health who are not medical, mm-hmm. but there also is a real need at times for medically trained people to stand up mm-hmm. because the public does trust that brand. Yep. And so you see that with the chief health officers standing up mm-hmm. explaining COVID. Mm-hmm. There's something about being a doctor, for better or worse, that leads to a... a le- they'll give you an element of trust to begin with. Yep. Uh, you can't blow that trust, <laughs> but it's something to start with and the public uh, likes the doctor word. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a cool idea, though, having that combination of like the biomedical trained and then the public health. Because um, I think in like the medicine training that's becoming more and more of a thing so I, I like i've got a couple of friends doing medicine at the moment and they've had to do public health units and all that kind of stuff since first year um and I, it's just such a it's a good uh level of knowledge that they need to really put their medicine to practice uh, yeah i think it's such a good idea mm. <laughs> but just to emphasize as well that you know public health physicians are such a small part of the public health workforce. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and it's it's no it's no um, coincidence that I've chosen to put my kind of um, spare time into the Public Health Association of Australia because mm. they are a multidisciplinary group. Yep. Um, I've put less time into the kind of the doctors only group, the faculty <laughs> of public health medicine, to be honest, mm. because you've only got a limited amount of time. Of course. And I've got a, a huge amount of... Um, um, I think I think the future of public health is actually multidisciplinary training. Mm. Yeah. Though there'll always be a need for some doctors to go in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but in the UK, for example, the faculty is open to medical and non-medical people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the direction Australia should go. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. we tend to adopt quite a few of the UK's policies and directions, don't we, eventually? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it seems like that's kind of a logical progression. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so you've just brought up the Public Health Association of Australia. Now, you were recently elected president of the national branch, is that right? Yep, of the yeah. National Association. Yep. Association, yeah. yeah. Congratulations, that's yeah. exciting. It's great. it's great to have a West Australian in that role. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious how that works. So will you be working with Terry Slevin, who's the CEO? Or how, how do, what's your relationship there? Yeah, so Terry, so we're on a Zoom call this morning. Terry's the CEO. There's a very small staff of... You know, somewhere around, um, I forget, but it's, you know, um, eight eight people or something like that, full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, they're based in Canberra, mm-hmm. but there's a membership of 1,700. So the key is getting the voluntary effort of the whole association, kind of leave it off this small full-time staff. Um, yeah. So it's a not-for-profit association. Terry talks about... When he goes and talks to a minister or something, he says, I represent an organisation where people pay membership dues in order to get more work, which they do unpaid <laughs> yeah. for the good of others. That's right. So that's the kind of organisation <laughs> this is. Yes. Yeah. So people do congratulate congratulate me on, on becoming president and that and that's nice <laughs> yeah. and, and I do kind of smile wryly and think yeah that's just another you know well done Taryn you've picked up another unpaid voluntary job you know like, <laughs> which, is, which is fine yeah, yeah but it's quite a competitive process and I noticed there were some big names on the on the yeah. shortlist that people were voting for so 
Um, yeah. yeah, it was quite quite good to have kind of democracy in action. So it's yeah. the first time mm. I've ever gone into a kind of a, a, a process where people vote. Yep. So it was kind of a bit uncomfortable, but <laughs> we, we actually had Hannah Pierce on our podcast earlier in the year, who's now working at the Cancer Council, which is the president of the WA Association, I yeah. think. Yeah, but she's yeah. just won some awards as well, or something. I saw it on okay. Twitter. She's yeah, okay. she's she's, she's done won the Emerging well. Leader Award yeah. from Public Health Association, That's and I've it. worked closely with Hannah, and yeah. she's absolutely fantastic. And yeah. she's come onto the mm. national board. Okay, oh, so cool, it's great. great. That's yeah, much awesome. deserved. Yeah, what's your um. This I'm sorry, I'm putting you on yeah. the spot here. What's your favourite project that the um, PHA do? Um, okay, that's a that's a, a good one. <laughs> um, I think um, the focus is really on um, equity and um, on Aboriginal health. So yeah. you know that is that comes through. There's a there's four vice presidents mm-hmm. which have different portfolios. One's called on policy. One's on um, development, um, no, one's on finance, but, but but there's also one on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander vice president position. And that just shows how important we we take um, equity. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's but awesome. But that's the specific point that Australia has to address, mm-hmm. which yeah. is kind of you know, a sine qua non. If you don't do that, yeah, you're not addressing the major things that that face Australia. Yeah, so that's awesome. having been involved in quite a few research projects where Aboriginal people are key stakeholders, myself um, working in the, with the prisons and, and that sort of vulnerable population type work, it seems to me that there's a real lack of, I guess, people who are academically trained or medically trained um, with an Aboriginal background. And it becomes this kind of last minute exercise in trying to find someone to fill that position. And I'm wondering what's happening at grassroots to try and address that gap in future, because obviously that's not going to happen overnight. It's something that needs to be worked on over time, isn't it? It is. But um, and I'll will start with the the positive news, which is, you know, I started working specifically in Aboriginal health in the early 1990s, and over the last 30 years, there've been so many um, um, Aboriginal people coming through professional training programs, not just into university, but into specialist training programs. We have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander medical practitioners, specialists, public health specialists. Um, Noel Heyman was the first um, Aboriginal public health specialist mm-hmm. who I've known for a long time, and he was recently recognised um, for the, his contribution. And um, and it is actually exciting. There's so many young people, there's mm-hmm. so many really well-trained people, and it, there is a growing number. Mm-hmm. Yes, the burden is still huge on, on those people. On a few people. On yeah, a few people, absolutely. but there are more... And there's more, op- and you want people given that opportunity to speak and have the voice. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, th- I think part of the other part of the other challenge is for non-Aboriginal people to allow and encourage Aboriginal mm. people to mm-hmm. to have a voice and create an environment in which it, there is a safe space. Yep. Um, and to get out of the way a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the constant challenge. Yeah. And uh, people are generally very kind in terms of learning and people will forgive you if you may get it wrong as long as you're in a genuine conversation mm. and you are trying to listen and you're you know we made a mistake this morning around some agenda item mm-hmm. on the zoom teleconference for PHAA and and our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, vice president Simon May Finlay pointed it out nicely mm-hmm. and we just acknowledged it and thought we need to do this better Yep. She's just um, released a, a, a guide to terminology. Oh, 
that's All right. cool. So that's on the PHAA website. It just says this is the this is the correct way you you talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Right. Here are some things not to do. Yeah. It's not it's not going to give you the, every answer in every circumstance, but read this, think about it, incorporate it, try and do it better. Okay. You know, so it's an ongoing learning process. It's hard to keep up with as well uh, as like writing academically um, the terminology because I oh, see. Oh yeah, I feel like we're pretty slow. I see, and I see Aboriginal people referred to differently based on the jurisdiction that the research mm. has been conducted in. Because I'm pretty sure in Western Australia we call Aboriginal people Aboriginal, yep. and we don't use Torres Strait Islander. But if you go over to the east, then, then it you is have to. Yeah. yeah. So I just recently, last weekend, wrote an academic p- paper. But as I wrote it, I read Summer May Finlay's guide okay. to yeah. make sure that at least I was doing my best to mm-hmm. get the terminology right. That's all yeah. you can do. That's such a good yeah. idea. Yeah, I yeah. think those kind of documents are really helpful, um, yep. particularly for, I guess, people like us, Craig, where we're still learning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, and I guess it'll evolve over time as well. Oh, yeah. of course. It'd have you know, to. Um, trends change and whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so... Just to pivot from there, uh, we were talking about public health and public health physicians and generalist sort of training and having an interest in public health. It seems like a pretty good um, apprenticeship to be a chief health officer, which you've done (laughs) twice now. I have. I never intended to be. I was very happy as um, a community physician in the Northern Territory. So basically I had a kind of mix of clinical and policy work and I thought I'd do that for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But funnily enough, you, you kind of, you learn that you're quite good at stuff. Right? I was quite good at policy, mm-hmm. you know, and I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. And so um, I thought, well, if you can, if the whole point is making a difference, why don't you make as much of a difference as you possibly can? Now, we all do that in different Such ways. Such a good perspective. Mm-hmm. So I thought, yeah. well, you know, rather than kind of, let's, let's try and operate at a different level and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I did a period of um, six weeks where I just stood in for the chief health officer and, and tested it and thought, mm-hmm. do I like it? Is this something I'd want to do? And I did. Yeah. And so when the opportunity came a few years later, I put my put my hat in the ring and mm-hmm. and it came off. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's it's a tough job. Yeah. There's um, you absolutely know that there's no guarantees about longevity. Yep. You know, you're, <laughs> you're as good as a few, a couple of people, a couple of prior chief health officers in other states and territories I, I knew. And, you know, it's it's if you don't get the media stuff right, it can be pretty unforgiving. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you, as long as you've got a, got, got a balance and you understand what comes with the job, um, it's fine. And also as long as you can, you know, I've been very lucky to have, you know, a supportive family mm. and mm. Uh, I would never trade that off. Mm-hmm. If it ever got too much, we all, you know, Karen, my wife, and I always had this agreement that, mm-hmm. you know, if it ever got too much, family comes first. Family yeah. be first, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And I feel like for, yeah, those kind of positions, you have to be pretty resilient because, yeah, there would be a lot of backlash in whatever decisions are made. I feel like mm-hmm. any any decision will always have some people like going like, yeah, that's great. And then yeah. the other group that will be like, no, that's terrible. Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So, yeah, yep. resilience would be a huge key in those kind of jobs that you've had. Yeah. Yeah, particularly in a jurisdiction like the Northern Territory where Aboriginal health is a, is mm. a huge component and it's a very politicised area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was lucky in that I'd worked um, for, you know, a long time in the field before taking that job. So when I took it in the Northern Territory, um, 
I kind of I kind of had really good connections to the grassroots. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. And yeah. so um, people, I think, gave me a chance, mm-hmm. um, and um, I really enjoyed that. And it's one small but really you know dynamic jurisdiction. Yep. Aboriginal people make up thirty percent of the population, so it's not like Aboriginal health's a minority issue. It's mm. a majority. Mm-hmm. It's a mainstream issue. Yep. And that's partly why I went to the territory because Aboriginal health research, which I was doing when I first went has got so much more prominence there Mm -hmm. Um, and you make really great relationships with Aboriginal people and I was on ethics committees etc discussing difficult stuff yeah there was an Aboriginal health research ethics subcommittee that that I was on Mm -hmm. which was all all chaired by an Aboriginal person all um, Aboriginal people on it and I was the scientific advisor so Mm -hmm. as a young researcher Mm -hmm. that was great experience Mm -hmm. so you know so much opportunity so much fun um, and um, yeah, I really, I really loved my time in the territory, and probably would have, probably would have stayed there if, you know, again, if something hadn't come yeah. come up back in Western Australia. So I was going to ask you, how did that mm. transition happen for you to come here as the chief health officer? Um, so my 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 own kind of family of origin were here, and our kids were, you know, at that primary school age, but just about to enter high school or the mm-hmm. oldest was and th- the job came up in Western Australia and from thinking we'd live in the territory for the rest of our lives <laughs> two months later we made the move back to back to Perth yeah, yeah. so it, and but back to Western Australia I'd say mm-hmm. um, because you know Western Australia is so much more than Perth oh absolutely yeah and it's a third of the country this is an incredible jurisdiction from the tropical north to the temperate south it's yep. extraordinary mm. And um, I think the only regret I have about the last, the 10 years I spent as CHO in, in WA is you, you do get trapped a bit in Perth. Right. And yeah, I'd, I'd never wanted yeah. to be trapped in Perth, but uh, life does that to you a bit. And uh, and also I think Perth does that to you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I could think of worse places to be trapped. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so but if you have to be trapped true. somewhere, it's not too bad, especially in the last year or so. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, true. We've been pretty lucky, but... Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And we do, I mean, that's one of the, you know, the East, Eastern states often think that West Australians are very parochial, and I guess they are. But I think it's with, it's understandable given how different our state is, mm. how diverse our state is yeah. compared to some others, you know, and the sorts of populations that we have and, you know, ge- geography and, you know, our location in, in, the, in Asia and all that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah, we'd sort of do walk to the beat of our own drum a bit, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah. So, so I was going to just during your you have you, you've got a long list of um, <laughs> achievements that have, that you you know that happened whilst you were a CHO here. Um, there's just a couple I was interested in asking you about. So, one was the development of an introduction of the Public Health Act in 2016, um, which was fairly novel uh, in Western Australia. Don't, is that is it something that happened has happened in other states already, or is that yeah, okay. So um, when I came back to Western Australia in, in early 2008, I was told that the Public Health Act was was just needed my kind of sign the briefing note and it'll get through in the next year or so. <laughs> right. Um, and in fact, that wasn't the case. It took another took another eight years to get it through. Considering mm-hmm. it's the Public Health Act of 2016. Yeah. <laughs> Seems yeah. like a long time, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... So the previous act was Health Act 1911. Yeah. Yep. And that was what we were operating under. Okay. Which is crazy. Yeah. 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 Which actually is a, it was an echo of the, the mid-19th century acts. 
Okay. All right. So it was, goes back to the kind of foundation of, you know, um, public health in England kind of yeah. and the colonial wow. transportation of that to the Australian system. Mm-hmm. So the acts we were working with in the early 2000s weren't that different from the 1860s in, right. in conceptualization. Okay. And the conceptualization was something like, here's a whole lot of risks and this is what you have to do to manage them. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Modern legislation, whether it's in public health or environment or even in mental health, they don't do that. They say, here is um, um, a series of risks Mm -hmm. which you have to manage in an appropriate and reasonable way, in Mm -hmm. a proportionate way. And we're not going to tell you exactly how to do it, but we're going to hold you to account um, for knowing your own business or industry or sector, knowing your own Mm -hmm. risks, and allow you then to come up with some reasonable appropriate plans and then we'll kind of have a look at that mm-hmm. and if you fail to do your due diligence if you fail to plan adequately there's some remedies in the act mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's very much a modern risk-based legislation yeah um, and it was actually started the work on this started in the early 2000s if if not the late 1990s in uh, Western Australia and um, we were leading for a while but then it just got bogged down. All the other states went past us, and right. others modelled modelled their legislation on our mm-hmm. draft legislation and went ahead of us. So we mm-hmm. were one of the last jurisdictions to finally introduce it. So why did it get bogged down? So there was a couple of reasons. One important reason was that there was a, a whole debate about binding the crown, okay. which is a, a legislative thing, which says. Um, this legislation is so important, it should actually bind everyone, inc- including the Crown or government. The state, yeah. Right. Yep. 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 But there was a concern among some parts of government that if the Crown was bound, that there would be a kind of a massive bill in terms of rectifying poor right. social and environmental conditions, mm-hmm. which you know the Chief Health Officer would be able to turn around and say, you need to improve the health of this part of west mm-hmm. of part of perth or this aboriginal community or mm-hmm. whatever and that wasn't that was that was a problem financially yeah mm-hmm. so we have, it one of the big um challenges for me was to actually keep people's spirit up during mm-hmm. that two-year process mm-hmm. because there was a hugely experienced team working in environmental health and in the legal and legislative services mm-hmm. who had done huge amounts of work and suddenly it seemed dead in the water oh. right now my job was to find opportunities to to get that conversation going again and get another chance to find a way to, to do this, but also keep people's spirits up during that couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I had to be positive. Um, and we eventually did find some an opportunity where Director General introduced me to someone else. We started the conversation again and we gradually unpicked it and found a way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so sometimes, you know, as a senior leader, you don't have the answer but you've got to trust the process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you've got to trust that it's going to eventually get there. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine you would have been extensively talking with the state solicitor's office during this process. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but that wasn't, that wasn't the block. <laughs> no, your, okay. your law background coming up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, they, they're sort of the government's lawyers. Yeah. So they would look out for the government, any risks that the government might mm. be exposing themselves to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, interesting. So you managed, so just a, a broad sort of overview of the Act, there was there were five principles, um, which you actually mentioned in your paper, talking about the Climate Health Inquiry, I think it was in the uh, Medical Journal of Australia. So sustainability, 
um, precautionary proportionality, intergenerational equity, and local government. So these are sort of the five areas. Now I've, I've just used one or two words there for each <laughs> principle, but um, really interesting. Um, a lot of these things you cite as a justification for doing the climate health inquiry. Um, do you just want to maybe speak to a couple of the, the key ones there that were forefront of that? So the principles approach is vital if you're going to take a risk-based approach. The two things work together. Because I can't say to you, manage your own risk, mm -hmm. but give you no kind of guidance. So the principles give you the guidance, but what you've got to look for when you decide about the specific way you're going to manage your risk. Um, and so um, also, just a little aside, remember that public health and environmental legislation used to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. Specific environmental legislation didn't come about till the 1970s and it gradually diverged. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Equally, I think public health and occupational health and safety legislation all used to be in the same act yeah. and then that diverged. Mm -hmm. So you can see a society develops its own understandings of the importance of areas. It, it produces its own law in those areas. Mm. Um, but there are underlying principles mm -hmm. that are actually common to environment legislation and public mm. health legislation. Yep. So you look at some of those which you've read out, Craig, mm -hmm. and you can see such as sustainability, mm -hmm. um, intergenerational equity, yeah. that those are key to thinking about both the environment and public health. Yeah. And then um, we had a very interesting process where this whole act went into committee where we um, were examined part by part by part from the beginning to the end of the act in a separate um, committee session of parliament. Um, which was all separately hand-sided. So an ability to just really interrogate every single bit of the Act, which is still on the public record. Mm -hmm. And um, in that process, you know, there was the introduction of a concept of well-being in specifically into, um, in addition to health. And it was actually already, it was kind of implicit in, in the legislation. Um, I wasn't, didn't feel strongly that, adding well-being needed to be there, but it came out of the committee process from okay. from the uh, politicians that they want to include it. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, if you take that concept of well-being, it links into environment. Um, and so, um, yeah, so if you th it doesn't, you can think through those words and you can mm -hmm. see your, for yourself the mm -hmm. connections to climate. Yeah. Um, we have a responsibility here not just to um, kind of, um, adapt to specific health effects or, uh, or prevent those health effects, but there's a broader um, impact that, we, that comes through the Climate Inquiry Report, which is about who we are as West Australians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's, it's important to us that we, we love, the, many people love the coast, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's not we don't, we're not just kind of um, average urban people. We mm -hmm. have a particular love of this state mm -hmm. which reflects it in our ability to go for a swim or summer or whatever it is mm -hmm. and our sense of identity is actually being challenged when i first came to this country when i thought about summer you know coming from the northern hemisphere i thought about <laughs> heat and cricket yeah. you know mm -hmm. i wasn't a very good swimmer so i didn't think particularly about beaches but you know how it is yep. but it's it was a relaxation 
Mm-hmm. You know, Australia seemed to shut down in those days from, you know, early December to late January. It seemed yeah. like a very long It's too period. hot. <laughs> yeah. But our concept was challenged last by last year's bushfires. Yes. Yeah. A concept of summer was challenged. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking ahead with anticipation and relaxation, we started to look ahead with fear. Yeah. And similarly, if you think of some, an environmental issue such as coastal erosion, mm-hmm. there's been, there was a report which we cited, you know, about how many parts of our West Australian coast are being affected. And it actually affects our sense of identity uh, um, when we walk along a strip wherever it is on the coast and we mm-hmm. see the erosion. Mm-hmm. It starts to impact us. Yeah, uh, You're seeing this in, in, at the moment in is it Queensland and New South Wales along the eastern coast mm. where the storms you know, and high tides plus rising sea levels really are having a devastating impact on you know, um, on the coastal areas. So there are obvious health effects, which we can talk about, Mm -hmm. but there's also more subtle indirect effects which go to our well-being. And part of what we got out of the climate inquiry is that even children feel this. Mm -hmm. Children instinctively want to go out and play and enjoy the environment. And when that's um, threatened, for want of a better word, they feel anxious. Yeah. Um, so um, there's lots there's lots of ways this impacts, and we mm. and there is a common set of principles that underlie the Public Health Act, underlie the Environment Act, that underlie our approach to climate. Mm-hmm. That um, that's important to reflect on. I think a really interesting kind of policy statement in the legislation is is around the precautionary principle and yep. the fact that you, we shouldn't delay action just because we don't have all the answers about how to address this doesn't mean we should sit on our hands when we recognise that there is a problem. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I, re- I think that's really interesting and it really contrasts with the Commonwealth Government's current position, which is you know, a lot slower. The states seem to be driving climate policy in, in Australia at the moment, climate reform. Yeah, look, so um, if there's one thing that people don't know enough about in public health, which is not taught and should be, is the um, federal system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you can do effective public health unless you're a student of the federation, mm. to be honest. And you're yeah. seeing that this year with this um, creation of national cabinet, etc., which has pros and cons. It's a quite, it's a very interesting constitutional yep. beast, actually. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to understand that it's not all, you know, it's it's not actually probably it's not that that um, mechanism isn't written into our constitution. Yeah, it's that's completely right. made up, really. Yeah. Mm. Um, so understanding how this works. So. Um, some people still think that, if you like, that this is a hierarchical system mm-hmm. and that the Australian government sets a whole lot of policies and standards or something and then these states and territories go off and do them. It's absolutely the opposite. Okay, we're a federation of states and territories mm-hmm. and have ceded power to the Commonwealth only on certain things, which don't include health. Right. And so you go back, the only thing in the health domain that was given to the Commonwealth was quarantine. Mm-hmm. So and what's happened over time, over the 20th century, and is that the powers of the Commonwealth have expanded through taxation, international relations, etc., and those powers tend not to come back to the states. Yep. Um, and also through deliberate reform, such as um, constitutional referenda, such mm-hmm. as in- empowering the Commonwealth Act on, on matters to do with Aboriginal people, which were previously, again, uh, disallowed. Right. They weren't allowed to enter that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when we, when you look at the climate piece, mm-hmm. 
it's easy to make a, and I'm not you know, be critical. It's easy yeah. to make a, a statement about who's doing what. That's fine, mm -hmm. but understanding how that relates to one's constitutional responsibilities is also interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, I think the Commonwealth government. Clearly, I'm not, I won't get into a kind of a political yeah. debate here, but they clearly could have a role. Mm -hmm. But equally, the states and territories are having a role consistent with their yeah. current responsibilities. Mm. I think where the confusion happens is that it's the Commonwealth government that enters into treaties and agreements for you know on the international stage. And I think that those signals that they send are pretty strong um, to the population. And obviously we regard ourselves as Australians, even though we're West Australians, um, just as New South Wales regards themselves as Australians, even though they're from New South Wales. And I think that's possibly where some of the criticism of the Commonwealth Government comes from, is they're looking for a unified sort of message that this is a real issue, it needs to be addressed, it's, you know, we need to take action sort of thing. And I think that's the framing that's... That is helpful. I mean, it's about signalling and linking and and creating more from in bringing the population with you, right? Mm. And that's a that's an incredibly important role for a national government, particularly in an issue whether it's climate change or COVID, which affects mm -hmm. every country in the world. Yeah. So clearly, there's an international dimension there. Yeah. You know, and um, I do agree with you. That's yeah. the role, but it's not the role the Commonwealth government. Do everything. No, you know, I it's like appreciate that. we have we have made progress here. There is a new state climate policy which was released last week. Mm -hmm. We can welcome that, and we can try and move on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you get stuck on one level, you work on another. That's mm -hmm. part of public health. There's never mm -hmm. any. There's almost never a single answer to anything. It's always this comprehensive, multi-level approach. Yep. There are short, medium, and long-term actions, and you get really strategic. And you know, you push on a door it doesn't open mm -hmm. um, you push on another door it opens you come back to that first door a little later and, and push again yeah so you know you, you just have to be optimistic and you just have to keep doing what you can do yeah and I guess like the good thing about it is because it is state controlled with bunny ears around control um, we like as people who live in Western Australia, we can really influence what the state does and what mm. we want to do about it, which can then influence Commonwealth and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what we want as a state can be really important and um, make I, a lot of change, which I is agree. good. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I think that the Commonwealth government's role up to this point has been to regulate climate change policy by, mm. by taxation or other mechanisms. But we've seen during COVID that the states actually dragged the Commonwealth Government to a public health response that the Commonwealth Government hadn't planned on taking. Um, and it seems like climate is going to be this, a similar sort of process. Yeah, so going back to the Federation, I mean, I, I, some people want to just abolish the states, right? I'm, I'm yeah. not one of them. I love no. this yeah. federal system. Mm -hmm. Yes, it costs us a bit in terms of, you know, it's uh, slightly more unwieldy, but actually there's huge benefits, mm -hmm. which I see as having worked for, you know, state governments for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them is just what you've said, which is if you're not making progress, but someone, some other jurisdiction is, and there are, you know, six states and two territories, major territories, then you can point mm -hmm. and you go and people go, well, why can't we do it over there? Mm. So it becomes this little um, game of, of 
people edging forward yeah. mm-hmm. and no one wanting to be last, mm-hmm. not everyone wanting to be first, but people staying in the middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. And you see that with scorecards, you know, when people have scorecards about how well each state's doing in tobacco control. Yeah. No one yeah. wants the Dirty Ashtray Award. Yeah. yeah. Right? right? So, um, and no one wants to be <laughs> at the back of the pack yeah. mm-hmm. for climate action. Yeah. And Australia's seeing that at the moment. You know, we don't want to be seen as being back of the pack. Mm. I don't think we want to be at the front of the pack, <laughs> but we, if we could comfortably move into the middle, yep. it would probably make our international relations easier. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so just before we discuss a couple of specific points on the on the climate health inquiry, um, I think there was a couple of practical examples where the Public Health Act or its predecessor um, were in use um, when you were Chief Health Officer. And one of those was the opening of Elizabeth Key Water Park, which made it into the news because it had to be shut down again not long <laughs> after. And there was some suggestion that the government of the day might have pressured you into making a decision. Do you just want to give us a bit of insight into that now that there is actually a different government <laughs> in power? Yeah, but happy to. Look, um, you have to, we, we talked about it earlier, you have to make decisions when they're in front of you. Yeah. Um, and Elizabeth Key was really, and you have to be accountable for those decisions. And you have to be as trans, I really believe in transparency and accountability. So I welcome whatever, what happened afterwards, which is a really, you know, in detail examination of the decision making process that was done by parliament actually okay so it did become political but then it was mm. examined over and over again various through various parliamentary committees and mm-hmm. i was absolutely confident you know i was absolutely comfortable with that level of scrutiny and mm-hmm. you know it's all on the public record and i, I just point yep. people to what we put on the public record yeah but in terms of the decision it um it was a major project mm-hmm. the opening of elizabeth key um, the government has a right to ask for, you know, the government or the proponents have a right to ask for a decision. Yep. The decision is, is the water park ready to open? Mm-hmm. Um, and the decision-making authority is clear. It's It was myself, but supported by a whole expert team in environmental health mm-hmm. who were giving me advice on a day-to-day basis about a whole range of different things, right? Um, so this is one of many decisions. Um, but you get, in terms of those day-to-day decisions, you get very comfortable working with people and understanding and trusting their expertise and knowing that they really know their stuff. Mm-hmm. And environmental health is full of people who really know their mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I, and water quality is, is one of them. Um, you don't have control over everything. So um, in the lead-up to the opening, you know, we wished for, as a public health um, regulatory body that um, the proponents had worked with us earlier. Mm-hmm. I think that's very fair to say, and mm-hmm. we made it known that we wished that they'd come to us earlier. <laughs> so who, who were the proponents you're talking uh, about? I think it was Metropolitan um, Redevelopment Authority, I think, at the time, and yeah. Yeah, had some fairly frank conversations with them. But in the end, a decision has to be made, and, and there was a, a process in the weeks up to the opening, um, and I had, to, I had to gauge, is there any risk to the public? Because this water park's opening. And with all the evidence in front of me in terms of the testing results, what have we done, et cetera, um, and the advice of my team, I said, no, mm-hmm. this, this, is, this can open now. There's, a, um, um, there's, an, a, there's a, a test that you do as, as, as a decision maker, which is um, the first test is around public communication, and you say, do if the, the test is should do I need to go public on this? 
And the answer is yes, if you want to go home and tell your family about it. Mm-hmm. If you want to go home and tell your family about it, you should go public. Okay. And equally, the test of any decision that affects the public is, would you want your own kids to go there or, you know, your grandkids or whatever it is, mm-hmm. would it be safe enough for them? And so those are the kind of tests you have in, instinctively. And if you're, not tr- if you're not sure and you can't say yes for certain, you don't, you don't do it. Right. But I made a decision. Um, I think it was proved correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, but it was examined over and over because a few weeks later, we did get a positive result that we did mean we needed to shut the water park yep. down, mm-hmm. and we did. Mm-hmm. But then that that fueled perception that the initial decision had been wrong. Right. Yeah. But so, and you got the so media. Inter- yeah, overload. intervening events caused something to happen down the line, but at the time, your decision was justified. And I, and we absolutely. I remember going in into the park and going underneath into the kind of engine room, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, we get to know this stuff in a lot, lot of detail. One of my key principles was always go and visit mm-hmm. any issue you you um, you're dealing with. If it's a problem and it hasn't been sorted out quickly, go to the site mm-hmm. uh, because there's all this stuff you pick up that um, either conversations or just looking at the environment that you weren't aware of through a briefing note. Yeah, um, and it is true they're probably underdone their filtration capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was why we'd got some problems in the lead-up. Mm-hmm. We thought we'd fixed it, but then they came back. Okay. And um, we forced, you know, we absolutely required that that was fixed up before yep. we let them reopen, and they did, and it's haven't heard of any problems since. since well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I re- remember when all this kind of happened, all of the Facebook posts and all that kind of stuff that happened, but... Mm. I really don't hear about it anymore. And no. as far as I'm aware, people really love the place. Yeah. So, you know, it all ended I s- well. <laughs> I cycle past it on the way to work uh, yeah. a few mornings a week and it's, it's quick, still going. There's always people there yeah. and, yeah, yeah. yeah it's good. <laughs> on a slightly similar note, there was obviously a bit of controversy around the opening of the Perth Children's Hospital due to the water again. <laughs> and I believe you were in the hot seat once again when that was going on. Did you on get any, like, labels about being, like, the water quality oh. guy? <laughs> Inside, there's always there's always you know a certain amount of dark humour that occurs yeah. within any organisation. <laughs> and you know, at the Christmas awards, the DG would give me the water award or whatever. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so nice. I've got a few yeah. of those sitting at home. Yeah, yeah. And in a funny kind of way, Elizabeth Key was a bit of a prelude to the children's hospital, and that was on an even bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, again, you know, you you have to know your stuff in mm-hmm. terms of. Um, um, in that case, it was. Again, environmental lead contamination. You have to understand Australian standards. You have to understand epidemiology, mm-hmm. um, and you and you're responsible for the decision. Um, I'm very proud of what we did with the children's hospital. Yeah. Um, people again said that it couldn't be done. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a dozen independent consultants' reports mm-hmm. that hadn't got to the bottom of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, what people don't realise is that for a long period, the health department was not in charge of this and did not have control of the site. Okay. <clears throat> so it was being done as a, a um, um, you know, as a kind of an engineering construction, construction issue. Yeah. issue. Mm. Um, and it wasn't wasn't until health um, was given control of the um, whole process that the Minister of Health then allowed me to go in and do a month's mm-hmm. control of the site and study. Okay. Where we sorted out what the problem was. So you managed to isolate the source of the issue. And part of it was that whole go in, have a look with your eyes. Yeah. And we saw something that others hadn't seen. Okay. 
which was that there were these boxes next to each of the taps. And we said, what's behind that? What's in that box? Mm-hmm. And people go, oh, you know, it's, it's the thermostat uh, mixing valve assembly box. Right. Well, can you, take, can you take the lid off? Let's have a look inside. Mm-hmm. And when we looked inside, it wasn't written, it wasn't, what was in those boxes was a lot of brass. Right. Yep. And they were saying, no, it's, it's not brass, it's stainless steel, because that's what it's, they said. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what yeah. it's supposed to yeah. be. So there was a, there's, in retrospect, there's a whole series of things about, um, you know, authentication or certification about mm-hmm. parts, you know, are things as they say they are meant to be. Mm-hmm. We have just recently had a, some feedback around masks in COVID, mm-hmm. which are not meeting standards, but mm-hmm. they are meant to, you know, they're kind of approved. Yeah. And so um, as our societies evolved, we've evolved a whole lot of separate processes. And sometimes it just doesn't join up yeah. and give you the assurance that you think is there. And different people have different responsibilities. But our eyes told us there was something next to the taps. Yeah. And then we did, a, you know, we did a series of, it was only a small team of five or six of us, and over a month from beginning to end, and we tested the... Um, the lead concentrations as you kind of aliquot water out of the taps mm-hmm. and we traced the high peak concentrations back to the distance from those boxes to there. Right. We sectioned these parts and we, we could see that um, how they had been corroded and mm-hmm. and uh, there was a process of desinkification. Mm-hmm. So um, we did a whole lot of really good kind of nice science mm. but we also did a whole lot of really fun epidemiology. Yeah put it together and said, we think this is where it's okay. coming from. Yeah. Um, we had run a baseline set of tests and the um, the success rate was 70-odd percent, right. low, low 70%, and that clearly wasn't good enough. You needed to get it above 95%. Mm-hmm. So that was our baseline. And people said, your, base, your testing is wrong. You put the <laughs> decimal point in the wrong place. They wanted to do everything except yeah. fix the problem. Yeah. And all the the uh, critique was of me as the regulator. Mm. Right. And they said, you know, you're setting too high a standard. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, anyway. It's too high of a standard for a Perth children hospital. Yeah. <laughs> but the government were absolutely fantastic. They backed yeah. us to the hilt. Great. Yeah, nice. And they committed to replacing over 1,200 of these boxes mm-hmm. locally by a local manufacturer yep. who resupplied mm. it, mm-hmm. replaced the boxes. Six to eight months later, we retested 98% compliance the hospital opened. Ready to go. Yeah. Yep. Ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, no one talks about it anymore. No. Like, yeah, I remember no. everything about the, that when it happened. It was on the front pages for, yeah. for a year or two. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like a modern day Jon Snow experiment. <laughs> well, I, think I, I, yeah. I kind of think it was a bit. I, I did get disappointed that, you know, public health didn't get any kind of particular kind of as a discipline credit because yeah. we yeah. were the ones who were able to paste put the epidemiology together with the science because yeah, mm. it's like you a know. really good like problem solving yeah. thing and yeah. um, it's not just as simple as going oh yeah that's wrong replace it um, but uh, yeah I'm sure like other people would have gotten credit for that like the people who did replace and all that kind of stuff but the amount yeah. of like but then people science. just move on right so the media yeah. just yeah. moves on yeah well the, all they're interested in is how much the government's going to get stung by the contractors yeah. and who's going to sue who and you know yeah. they don't actually think about who solved the problem but like imagine if just the the hospital just decided to completely shut down and not do anything then mm. there'd be so much more backlash and issues and like this what we can do with the space and all that kind of stuff yeah. so you know the amount of problem solving uh, yeah 
totally worth it in Incredible. my mind. Yeah. That's, uh, have you told that story publicly? Um, people inside kind of know the story. I've, I've, yeah. I've written a little bit about it in a um, in a paper in a in the Gordon Oration for the Public Health Association, mm-hmm. which is which we published last year. I, I wrote it because no one had ever discussed it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I thought actually public health. You know, you know, I'm a bit conflicted because I was involved, but public health as a discipline was able to solve this problem, mm-hmm. whereas all these other engineering and other disciplines had not been able to solve this problem. They were throwing, oh, let's try this, let's try that, let's try this. Yep. So it was a trial and error kind of right. process, mm. whereas we went back and said, this is all failed, let's go back to the basics, let's yep. strip this right back to the... Where is the problem? Where here? is the problem? Let's try and isolate <laughs> it. Yep. And then let's come up with a hypothesis of what could be happening here and, and let's it. test the hypothesis. Yeah. Very basic. Oh, I love mm. it. But mm. it hadn't been done. It was yeah. let's try this, you know, try that. Mm. Looking for a quick fix, basically. Yeah. yeah. A cheap fix. That's what most of them are looking for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Oh. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. that's a, that's a an exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. And another thing that public health probably needs credit for is how the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, has been handled here. Now, you were drafted into Victoria, weren't you? Uh, so let's, let's start with, I mean, I think the, so I've been out of, out of um, the public sector for a couple of years now. So mm-hmm. mid-2018, I stepped down. And, um, and so credit to all the people who have done the hard work in government. So again, it's another public sector has stood up. Yeah. You don't look to the private sector at the mm. time of the pandemic, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And um, so well done. And and I was always unbelievably proud to be a public servant and, and uh, because I used to get to work with really great people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and the, same, the same is true. So I was drafted in to help with Victoria when their case numbers were going up in late June, early July. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent three weeks there. Um and there's been a number of inquiries since then. It was a really tough, tough period. Um, you're right in the engine room and, mm-hmm. you know, all the signals are going off and people are sweating under pressure and yep. you're not sure whether you can turn the ship around. Mm-hmm. But all hands all hands are on deck or in the engine room or whatever the analogy <laughs> is. Mm. Um, and um, eventually got there. Yeah. Uh, not without huge cost. Mm to obviously the Victorian community and, you know, you really feel for the people who, in the aged care homes who, who passed away and their families mm. and that's, you know, a lot of people. Yep. Um, so we never want to go through that again. Um, I would say that with the benefit of hindsight and it's written in the reports from the, the latest came out a few days ago from the Victorian Parliament around contact tracing, um, it was an open secret for 20 years that Victoria had underinvested in public health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I knew that. I'd been involved in multiple reviews of the Victorian system when I was in the NT and in WA as Chief Health Officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a clear difference between the level of investment in Victoria compared to other states and territories. And that level of investment eventually catches up with you. Caught up, mm. yeah. Um, and yes, you can throw, you know, lots and lots of money afterwards, <laughs> but you're not, it's at a cost and you're not going to, you need good quality people as well as numbers of people. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a main message of public health as well. So um, I guess Craig and I were talking about this when we were walking over to this little studio is that prevention is really a major part of public health, whereas treatment 
you're allowing the problem to happen and then you're treating it afterwards. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing with money is like if you invest in your, your public health systems and your hospitals and all that kind of stuff, then they can prevent those future problems from happening mm. rather than seeking a treatment yep. after something's already happened. Mm. Um, so that might be related to Victoria with the under... Um, it also finance. relates to what you're doing in universities, right? So you're yeah. you're training the next generation. You're investing, mm. you know, because we're a knowledge industry, right? Mm. Mm. You need people with knowledge and able to apply it. So yeah. yep. the role of universities in terms of masters of public health, etc., is, incre- is incredibly important. When I came back to WA, um, I was just blown away by the number of absolutely fantastic young people there were who were really well trained mm-hmm. and increasingly trained in two disciplines. They'd be trained yeah. in public health and be trained in something else and they'd bring their skill set together. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the reasons multidisciplinarity works is that you need people to bridge gaps between disciplines to get answers yeah. to stuff. So you saw that yeah. with the children's hospital. You mm-hmm. needed di- people with different disciplinary skills brought together. Yep. Um, you need this for almost every public health problem. Even when you get vaccine, when we think about vaccine rollout, you're going to need social scientists, behavioral scientists, psychologists, engineers. all lots mm. of people, communications, you know, engineers, logistics people. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's mm. why for public health is so fascinating yeah. and so challenging. But you do need a prior level of investment. You cannot just turn on the tap. It will be rusted yep. by the time you turn it on. And that's what happened in Victoria. Especially yeah. when it's, it seems like their system is so centralised that when the regions started having problems, they didn't have people on the ground who knew who to talk to to get yeah. something happening, whereas New South Wales seemed to be the, the opposite of that. And that was clear, from the big, that was clear yeah. to everyone, including in the system. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But, yeah, it's just sort of caught up with them eventually but now they've yeah. they to their credit over the last six months nearly all of the problems that were identifiable then have mm-hmm. been addressed yeah. okay that's yeah, good they've to done hear. well up to and including splitting the big department into two departments mm. right mm-hmm. so there were you know many problems that needed to be addressed yeah and they have been worked through in the last six months and thank goodness we're now the out the other yeah. side of this mm. and maybe victoria will teach us lessons from here on in yeah but there is Going back to the Public Health Association, there's been um, a couple of national cabinet statements in the last year where people have talked about the importance of the public health workforce Mm -hmm. as critical. And so I was part of a national contact tracing review as well um, where we went around and looked at contact tracing capacity and we made the same points about public health expertise. It's not just about technology or turning on information systems. That's important. Mm -hmm. It's also about the expertise to use them. Having said that, what the Public Health Association will be talking about in the next week or so is that commitment has not translated into anyone's budgets about actual investment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very easy to say, yes, we should do this, mm-hmm. but then you need to follow that gap to, well, what are you going to do? And usually the way you've that's represented in our society is through the, the budgets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So always follow the money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, if you do it at home, you do it at work. You know, yeah. follow the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. So we're probably getting close to the end of our conversation. So we just wanted yeah. to finish off with a couple of um, points about the climate health inquiry. Um, did you? I'm, wanna... I'm gonna I'm gonna butt in here. Yeah. Um, having read the article. And it's 178 pages, and 
I tried to read most of it, but and I got I got through yeah through yeah. the actual report, um, 178 pages. Got through maybe three quarters of it this morning. Um, if everyone kind of agrees, it might actually be better to have that as a separate episode because yeah. I feel like there is so much there to unpack and mm-hmm. like this in itself, I feel is a really good episode. Like there's so many stories and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I yeah, I actually think that maybe we should have a separate episode. Yeah. But that's up to everyone here. So we can go for like another 15 minutes and talk about it or we could have a second. Okay, so episode. I'll be happy to come back next year. Can I give people yeah. a, a little clue here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah, Good. if everyone right. is happy so with that. So I don't that. expect, didn't expect people to read the 170 <laughs> pages, right? Yeah. In fact, it's, but it's well structured. You can go to the bits that you're particularly yeah. interested in. And it's in. so easy mm. to read as well. Right. Though. Yeah, it's right. so, so easy to read. I put all my, all of, all of us as a team, yeah. put all of our... Um, effort into making it readable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but I want to tell you what it is yeah. and where to go. So, the yes. first thing I'll okay. tell you is go to the executive summary, which is, and that in there is a chapter by chapter narrative over two or three mm. pages. That was written for you, mm. mm-hmm. for the listener out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I wrote it and sweated blood and tears <laughs> to describe a narrative. Yeah. And it's going back to our. You know, I said I was interested in humanities. I wrote that narrative based on my reading of Victorian novels as an adolescent, in which there's, at the front of these Victorian novels, is a kind of a story about what happens in each chapter. Mm-hmm. Right? And I used to love that because mm. it tells you what the what the main character is going to do and what happens to him or her and, yep. you know, some you know extraordinary event that happens and whatever. Prop twists. Yeah. Prop twists, etc. <laughs> and it's all up in that front there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you know chapter by chapter what's going to happen. I wrote the 10 chapters, the summary, in two or three pages to do precisely that. So the mm. story of the whole report is encapsulate, encapsulated in that t- chapter narrative, which is three pages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing to realise, and we can come back and talk about it uh, next year, I'd, be, I'd welcome that, is that if you think about a process of change, there's, and someone told me this a few weeks ago, so I'm just using their their um, framework. There's three things. One is all of the kind of the data, the technical stuff, all the facts, if you like, on one side, yeah. which is what we have experts for, <laughs> right? whether it's environment or health or whatever. In the middle, and this is where the Climate Health Inquiry uh, report is, is the story, mm-hmm. the narrative you create out of that mess of facts. And part of it is we haven't agreed on a climate story yet. Mm-hmm. But this story in this report is about Western Australia and it's about climate here and climate now. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not about the future, it's about right here and now. And there's, and all the voices from all of the people who made submissions and came to our hearings are captured in this report as a story. The next phase, which is why we should meet next year and talk about it, is about how you use that story to generate action and change in the yeah. world through networks and partnerships mm-hmm. and what you what people will see is once they've understood that this is a story piece they can go into the report and they can find the threads that go back to the facts and to the expert witnesses who said which you know so they can find if someone is saying something about mental health who said it mm. and then they can go and find that testimony and read it for themselves depending on what their interest. So they can go back and explore the roots if they want, or they can just take the story. But then the challenge is to take that story into your networks and do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's really up to all of us 
to find those things that we can do based on the story of Western Australia's climate and yeah. how we identify. Yeah, no, it's it's a fascinating read. It is actually very, very good. Yeah. Um, so, think, yeah, I feel like... It, yeah, definitely we could we could easily talk for an hour on just oh, on, the, yeah. on that <laughs> inquiry and the report. Um, I think one of the th- general observations that I made was that there are so many diverse stakeholders that people yeah. wouldn't think of as being stakeholders in, in a climate discussion. Definitely. Um, so that'll be something we'll definitely explore in more detail. Yeah, so are we are we happy to do that? Sounds yeah? like it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've enjoyed today, that'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay, awesome. I haven't put you off then. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Gordon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. So that was our conversation with Taryn Weiramanthri. What did you think, right. Um, Yeah, so that was uh, very, very interesting. And um, I just have so many questions. Yeah. And now I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> well, what you can do with yourself is do a bit more research on that climate inquiry report. Yes. Um, because we'll be discussing that in more t- detail in a future episode. Which is so exciting. Um, uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see what the story is behind uh, forming this document. And it, it is such a fabulous read. Like, yeah. Yeah, I have read it. It took me about an hour and a half to get through the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. It is very easy to read, um, but so fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great that um, he's able to come back on and explain that to us, which was our original point. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, there were a couple of things in the report that which we'll obviously talk about with um, Taryn in more detail in yeah. the next episode. And he mentioned that he was going to come back next year. This episode's actually coming out next year. But <laughs> it was recorded at the end of 2020, yeah. um, but you are listening to it in 2021. Um, but a little bit of light reading. So one of, one of the, the topics that um, really interested me in the report, one of the findings and the recommendations was how important a role Aboriginal people could play mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in our climate management and the management of our resources and um, our land and whatnot Um, and it sort of harks back to the traditional knowledge and experience that they've had over thousands of generations of managing the land before white settlers arrived and uh, obviously changed a lot of the landscape in Mm. Australia so it's it's a different country now than it was in 1788. Um, but a book that people might be interested in doing a little bit of pre-reading in preparation. <laughs> You've um, got pre-read. Oh, that's yep. hilarious. <laughs> it's, uh, it's by a guy who I think he's an anthropologist that who used to be at the Australian National University in Canberra, a guy called Bill Gamage. And he wrote a book back in 2012 called The Biggest Estate on Earth. And he's used the term, so he says how Aborigines made Australia. He's used the term Aborigines. We, we wouldn't say that these days. We'd say yeah. Aboriginals uh, or Indigenous people. Yeah. Um, but that's the title of the, the book. Um, it's definitely worth a read. And basically what he did was he went back through all the artwork that a lot of the early settlers painted and, and drew when they arrived in Australia, of how Australia looked at the time. And it actually looked more pristine than it does today. Hmm. There was cl- like big grassed areas that were cleared, um, that had all been done using fire, um, burning the forest at different times of years um, to generate new growth and to provide... Uh, habitat for the, the natural wildlife to live in. It's a fascinating story. I won't go on too much about it, but it's <laughs> worth reading because it'll give you a bit of context as to some of the findings that, that Taryn makes in the report mm. about how Aboriginal people could help us navigate some of our climate change yeah. challenges. Which I think is actually true for a lot of Indigenous peoples around the world because they, they know the land and yeah. they, they know how to use it. So, yeah, that yep. seems fascinating. Um, 
the point that I was going to talk about was the connection between climate change and health. And Mm -hmm. no, I don't have any pre-reading for that. (laughs) Um, But there is some fascinating connections between climate change and mental health, um, as Taryn said, um, between our, like, very identity of being a Western Australian and how we're connected to the coast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Western Australia has the biodiversity hotspot in Australia. And I feel like everyone's very protective of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, climate change threatens that. Um, so, and, and that ends up developing um, feelings of anxiety, feelings of um, loss and all that kind of stuff. So there's some fascinating connections between climate change and health, yeah. not just the ones that you think about, which is like in Australia, I guess, uh, you know, deaths due to um, heat and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, uh, cyclones and everything like yeah. that. So, that yeah, it's so much more extensive than I think people would realise. Yes, those yeah. are sort of the extreme events that we're now understanding are driven yeah. by climate change. But people's health are being influenced now yeah. by climate change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, if, if nothing else, it'll cause us to pause and think. Yes. Yeah. And hopefully uh, act then differently act. in the future. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, really fascinating conversation with Taryn. So we'll call that Taryn part one. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I imagine the sequel will be as interesting, if not more interesting. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah, I just have more questions now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's really humbling to get someone of his calibre on the podcast. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I I think we are incredibly lucky to be able to get to know him a bit, particularly on like a personal level, because I feel like, yeah, we we did learn a bit about him as a person. and That's right. Yeah. And some of the philosophies and um, knowledge that he's relied on to do the things he's done yeah. at, very, at the highest level of government, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, interesting. All right. Well, All right, that's enough bragging or, like, <laughs> being humble. What's the word? I, I humble brag. Yeah, humble brag, yep. Yeah, <laughs> just a casual brag. Yeah. About great. But, yeah, but it, was all, it was actually all about the guests, not us. That's so. right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope everyone has enjoyed listening to this episode. Yeah. Uh, and, and we look forward to bringing you many more in 2021. Yes, and there will be other announcements as well yes, as, we, there will as we move be. forward. And you can um, contact us uh, from our email, which is meaningofhealthatoutlook.com, yeah. and on Twitter, which our handle is at healthmeanswhat. So please talk to us. We would love to get any emails or comments or um, weird messages or memes or, or whatever you want to send through. That yep. would be amazing. We'd love to hear from you guys. There's no such thing as a bad message. Unless it's like... I hate you. (laughs) But then, you know, we'll take that feedback on. (laughs) That's true. Anyway. All right. right. See you in the next episode. Cheers. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.